0: Well, in April uh, and May, the next couple of months, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 4 together in our preaching time, in our group guides, in our family guides, which are all available online uh, for us to use for the various discipleship relationships and purposes that God has us in right now. And I'd also encourage you over the next couple of months, read Romans 4. As we kind of go through these bite-sized portions uh, of this text, it's good to keep the whole chapter in mind. So read uh, Romans chapter 4 a couple of times over the next couple of months. And I'd also like to remind you that we uh, started a daily reading guide this year. We've gone through Philippians already, and just this week we started 1 Samuel. So you can find all of that uh, online. With that being said, let's read Romans chapter 4. Let me uh, read it for you, and then we will pray and get to work. Here's what it says, verses 1 through 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. These are the very words of God. And we say thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help. I have caught myself saying that so many different times and in different situations these past number of months and this past year. And it's so true, and forgive us for how often we think we don't need your help. How often we say to ourselves, whether literally or just in practice, I got this. We don't got this. We need your help. And so even as we come to your word today, we can't figure this out on our own. We don't know what the God of the universe has to say unless you graciously reveal truth and beauty to us. And so may we give you our undivided attention for your glory and our joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Let me catch us up a little since we took an appropriate break for Passion Week looking uh, at the gospel according to Matthew. Uh, God is righteous and we are not. I think it's about the best way we can summarize the first three chapters of Romans, that God is righteous and we are not. And salvation, as described in Romans, is all about righteousness or moral conformity to God's will and to God's word. And we can't save ourselves, particularly because, as Paul, the writer of Romans, has made it so clear, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if that weren't enough, he, he goes on to say that, that righteousness, though, apart from The works of the law has been manifested apart from the law and so we have been justified by grace as a gift he says in romans 3 24 and 25 through the redemption of jesus christ to be received by faith so when we talk about salvation we talk about righteousness that's really at the center Of the conversation we need to be saved because we are not righteous and whether it feels good or sounds good or not what that means is that we are destined for an eternity separated from god separated from joy separated from purpose separated from family and true purpose that god has for us see to be saved you need to be righteous and the law of god which many of us can put our trust in what we're taught in Romans 3 as well is all it does is reveal our need for righteousness. The law reveals sin. But the good news or the gospel as Paul has articulated it to us in Romans is that righteousness has been extended to us by grace through faith because of Jesus Christ. So here's how we summarize the past number of months and the past few chapters of the first 3 chapters of Romans is we can't reach righteousness. But in Christ, righteousness has reached us. Can I get an amen? We can't reach righteousness, but in Christ, righteousness has reached us. This is what makes Jesus different. This is what makes him different than any other worldview or idea that we could possibly consider. See, this is actually a marvel of biblical morality. A marvel. Sometimes we get so close to the gospel, at least in thought, that we are no longer marveled by it. We're no longer overwhelmed by it. But as we read the words of the Apostle Paul, it should be like a cathedral of words that we step into and just look up and just go, wow. Right? We're just so stale to this thing, we're, we're missing it. But here's what God doesn't do. God doesn't change the law. He doesn't lower his standards to make righteousness more accessible or salvation more accessible. God does not simply allow his righteousness to crush us, which it would. It would only reveal Our brokenness and our sin instead what he does is that he sends his one and only son Jesus Christ to be our righteousness in doing so Paul says the law is upheld that's chapter 3 verse 31 the gospel actually upholds the law of righteousness and makes it possible for sinful people like you and sinful people like me to become righteous not just to go to church right not just not just to have a bible that you read regularly not just to have these sort of tertiary and secondary things of sort of a christian culture you actually become righteous that's second corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of god god makes his unattainable righteousness available to us through Christ. So the gospel does not mean that the law does not need to be kept. The gospel means that in Christ, it already has been kept. It already has been kept. You see, here's here's how we break it down for our, our own consciousness, and I believe what Paul is pressing home as he juxtaposes Gentiles and Jews throughout the first three chapters. Moralism, or sort of like the modern way of thinking, moralism changes the law to make a righteousness attainable. So moralism changes the law to make righteousness attainable. We make up rules and, and things that we can actually do on our own and then judge people for not following those things instead of following Christ. Right? So moralism changes the law to make righteousness attainable. Modernism, and this really, forgive me for earlier misspoke, but this is sort of the modern way of thinking. Modernism relativizes the law to make righteousness personal. So whatever is good for you is good for you, is good for me, is good for me. Moralism relativizes righteousness so that you can be your own savior. This is why Jesus is different. Different than moralism, different than modernism, is that Jesus upholds the law to make us righteous. Upholds the law to make us the righteousness of god. So that's the latter half of chapter three So now we're caught up and in chapter four Paul continues this theme. He continues to teach on justification by faith a faith that excludes boasting Meaning you got nothing to say and a faith which upholds the law. So even though we're starting a new chapter We're still on the same idea the same theme. So in chapter four paul deals with another potential objection that his readers may have with his teaching of justification by faith. Remember, Paul has done this a number of times before. In, in chapter two, he listed all of these th- sins, and then he knew that the religious people or the, the moralists in the room or that were reading this letter are probably thinking, he's, he's really sticking it to the sinners today, and I'm glad he's not talking to me. And Paul kind of switches it on him, and he says, no, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. By the way, if ever you think the scriptures are not speaking to you, buckle up. If you think it's for somebody else— that God is opening up the Scriptures so that you would see the truth and beauty of the gospel of Jesus. If you think, oh, I wish old so-and-so would have read this passage today, I'm going to text them right now and make sure that they read it. You better be sure you have surrendered your heart to that word first. This is what Paul makes clear in Romans 2. See, the, he, he is talking not just to one group of people that need to get their act together, and the rest of us are like, yeah, they really do. Way to go, Paul. He's speaking to all of us. He's speaking to all of us. And so we need to be so careful when we believe God's word is going to hit someone else between the eyes, and we can't wait to see him do it before we recognize that there's a plank in our own eye that we've got to deal with. And the good news is is that Jesus is willing, able, and ready to deal with that so that you can be useful in bringing about healing and hope to others. See here in chapter 4, Paul anticipates another objection his readers might be thinking, this sort of unspoken curiosity or even objection to what Paul might be saying. And though we may not articulate it the exact same way, I think there's much in here for us to consider because there are things that we also are wrestling with. So what is the objection? Well, in the case of uh, chapter 4, the objection being considered has to do with works of righteousness and works of the law. Paul deals with the objection masterfully, essentially by calling two key witnesses to his behest. Abraham, Israel's great father, and David, Israel's great king. And we'll look at Abraham today in this particular portion in 1 through 4. And then we'll look at David next week. Essentially, if we're to boil it down to a particular question that Paul is seeking to answer in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, is simply this. Is grace new? Is grace new? Is grace, this idea of unmerited favor of God, is this a new Concept. In other words, someone may in the audience or in his readership may be saying, So, okay, now it's justification by works alone, but it used to be different. It used to be about obeying the law and finding righteousness without grace and without faith, right? In fact, some of us may surmise a similar kind of thing. When Jesus came, things changed and now it's by grace. So, do you see that's the question? Is grace new? Paul's answer should be real obvious to us, by the way. No, it's not. It's not new, but how he answers this is really important for us. See, the way he begins to address this question is deeply instructive. He does it in two parts. First, he's going to say why his readers are wrong. And the second thing he's going to do is saying, it's really good that you're wrong. So first, he's going to say why they are wrong. And then he's going to tell them why it's so great that they're wrong. All right. So one way for us to be thinking about this is that Paul is going to give them the truth and then he's going to show them the beauty. He's going to tell them the truth about grace, and then he's going to show them the beauty about why this is who God has always been. Now, let's remember, Paul has already established that grace or justification apart from the law is not a new idea. He goes to chapter one in chapter one and in chapter three, making it clear that the prophets in the Old Testament scriptures have testified about Jesus coming chapter 1, verse 2, promised beforehand through the prophets in this Holy Scriptures. And then in chapter 3, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Bear witness to what? The gospel of grace. This is what God has always been planning on doing, in other words, is what Paul is saying. In fact, notice that in chapter 3, verse 21, there's this present language that the law and the prophets are still bearing witness to Jesus Christ. They're still bearing witness to Jesus Christ. So, Grace is obviously not a new concept to Paul. It's not a fresh thought. But that's not precisely, I think, what Paul's audience is likely wrestling with. It's connected to this, but it's more specific. It's about, this is what Paul is really going to be confronting in chapter 4. After all, the Bible, including the Old Testament, is teeming with God's graciousness. We see his graciousness everywhere. So the objection really has to do more with the heart of God's character and the heart of salvation about what it means to be saved. So perhaps a better way to articulate their question is not just is grace new, but is grace the new way that God saves humanity? Is grace the new way that God saves humanity? Or to put it in more churchy language, if you please, is salvation by grace through faith only a thing after the death and resurrection of Jesus? Is salvation by grace through faith only a thing after the death and resurrection of jesus again paul's gonna say no he's not gonna bury the lead he's gonna say no grace is not new in any shape any form any fashion but paul makes his way to that answer by first asking a couple of questions now look again chapter 4 verse 1 through 3 here's what paul begins to say in addressing this question or concern he asks a few questions what then shall we say was gained by abraham our forefather according to the flesh For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So in order to answer this question of grace, if grace is a new way that God saves humanity, we have to go back to the very beginning of God's story with God's people. We have to go back through what many theologians call the history of salvation. Paul takes us back to Abraham, the father of God's people, of Israel. And in his questions and commentary, Paul makes it clear there are a number of corrections he is going to make for his listeners. So between the lines, we can discern that the objection his readers had, they believed that Israel in general and Abraham in particular was selected and saved by God because he had a righteousness in and of himself. That his works proved that he had a righteousness, a salvation, if you will, in and of himself without need for grace or faith. But that's not true. Paul is making this clear through a series of corrections. Remember, first he's going to tell us why they're wrong. And he does it in three ways. He corrects three things that we can understand about their presumption. First, he corrects history, then he corrects their theology, and then he corrects their character. So history, theology, and in character, and every correction proves that grace is not new. First, he corrects history. Abraham was a victim of what we may describe today as revisionist history. We still fall prey to this deception. Paul's first question reveals this errant presumption. Abraham gained nothing according to the flesh, but people had begun to presume that Abraham was special. We got people In our lives like that, they must be special. Like I needed all of God's grace. They maybe needed a little bit. My grandma, you ever met my grandma? She barely needed grace. She does most things perfectly, right? We got people in our lives like Abraham that we think they don't really need grace. They've got a righteousness of their own. That was Abraham. He was a celebrity of their culture, a fame in their faith. And they believed that he didn't need God, that he had a righteousness essentially of his own. But if that were true, the grace would be a new thing. If that was true, grace was a new thing now that Paul was teaching his readers that Abraham did not need. So fact check this, misconception. Paul, misconception. Paul goes back to Genesis 15, 6, and he says, and he believed God, and it was counted as righteousness. See, belief or faith is what led to righteousness, Paul says. Not works, not f- but faith and grace. So this passage sets the record straight. And I wonder if there's something even, take just a second for this, if there's something even between the lines of Paul correcting history that's really good for us. A lot of times we try to correct people or history or faith or our own feelings by going to a lot of other things except the word of God. Where does Paul go to bring correction to his readers? Genesis 15. He doesn't go, wow, you guys, I just, I really think that Abraham was kind of messed up. And like, what do you feel about that? Let's form a small group and talk for months about it and see what we work out together. He's just like, actually, we could just go to the Bible and know right now. Genesis 15, verse 16. This is so instructive for us. Church, go to the Bible. Quit going to all kinds of other places to figure out the truth and the beauty of who God is. Go to the Bible. It's right there. Many of us are so confused right now, myself included. Do you know we get so weary and so tired and so frustrated, usually because we're looking for all of the answers in all of the wrong places. We're going to our friends. We're going to our family. We're going to the invisible judge within our own hearts trying to find truth. It's not there. It's in God's word. Paul goes to God's word. He course corrects. He corrects their history. This is by grace, not by works. Paul corrects their errant historical fallacy second he corrects theology one of paul's primary points in his theme of justification by faith alone is that for the jews and the gentiles it's a singular theology it's a theological point he's making in romans 3 29 and 30 it says that god is one that that has a dual meaning it means that god is not divided in a couple of ways he's not divided in the way that he saves both jews and gentiles on the merits of christ A Jew is saved on the merits of Christ. A Gentile is saved on the merits of Christ. Not because they are a Jew or a Gentile, because they have a righteousness of their own or they don't. It's based on the merits of Christ. So that's the way that God is one, firstly. Secondly, scriptures teach us that God is united within himself. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So God is one in both those ways, in the ways that he saves and in his nature. So God is eternally unchanging within himself and in what he does and how he relates to humanity. This is a fundamental doctrine with so many implications. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Perhaps this is a familiar text to many of you, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and when? Forever. He doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if grace is a new thing, then God is different today than he was yesterday. This is what Paul is communicating to his readers. The structure of our modern Bibles actually is pretty... misleading in this. This is one of the reasons why Martin Lloyd-Jones advocated publishers to stop putting the distinction between the Old and the New Testament, because it can be confusing. When we see a divide like that, even the way our Bibles are laid out, which are not inspired by God, but inspired by publishers, to put it this way, the divide unnecessarily gets us to think, oh, something changed. God's different now in the Old, from or in the New, from the Old Testament. It's misleading to us, and we begin to adopt this theological errant view of who God is. It's not true. The Old Testament is not this place f- that has no grace and then Jesus shows up in the new and now there's all of this grace. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's, that's always been wrong that he has changed, that he is different. God was gracious and God is gracious. God promised his son, then he sent his son. God loved us and God loves us. God was righteous and God is righteous. God was one, God is one. Yesterday, today, and forever. Am I preaching to you yet? So what happens is that things don't change when Jesus shows up. They are fulfilled when he shows up. Things are fulfilled. They come to fruition when he shows up. We see the clearest manifestation of God's grace in Jesus. We don't see a new thing called grace in Jesus. Grace is not new. and Paul corrects our bad thinking on this, bad theology. Lastly, he corrects character. So he's corrected history. He corrected theology. And now he corrects character. How does he do this? Well, boasting continues to be at the heart of this objection, and Paul knows this. Verse 2 says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. See, boasting keeps coming up because the human heart searches for ways to boast in itself. I had to pray this morning with our band before we uh, gathered today, God, forgive us for the ways we thought it was going to be about us today. Because when I woke up, my heart started searching for things to boast about. Who, who did I already outperform before they even woke up today? Who was I already better than in the way that I parented my screaming children in the middle of an in-person gathering? Who, who's the man? Like all of these things start coming to our mind. And what's Paul say? Abraham literally had nothing to boast about in God, so why do you keep talking? Because there's something going on. See, the ego, as Richard Rohr says, hates losing even to God even to God. Paul's correction here, though, is that whatever it is that you find to boast and whatever your heart latches onto makes no sense in the presence of God. What, whatever you look at your neighbor and just go, I'm better than him or her at that or at this or the way that I did that. Whatever that thing is that makes you better than them, you bring that before God and see how far that gets you. You bring that before God and see how far that gets you. I've I've just come up with a few ways that, you know, I can do this, and I imagine you can too. Ways that we believe that we can impress God. We come to him and say, uh, I raised my kids really well, did you see? He simply says, I've given every family on earth their name. You make a lot of money, and God says, I own a cattle on a thousand hills. For every beast of the forest is mine. You served your neighbor this week and thought it was really impressive. Jesus says, I I came to give my life as a ransom for many. He invented loving neighbor. So what do we have to boast about? And I think this should do something to the very level of our hearts. Because when we're not boasting in ourselves, we welcome correction when I'm not trying to protect my righteousness from my brother or sister, then when they say, hey, I really saw that, that, that the way that you said that, you were sort of powering up on them. Your ego was showing, your pride was showing. I don't fight back and defend myself when I'm not boasting. I go, yeah, I know that's something the Lord has really brought to my attention. I, I, don't, I don't defend, I boast in Christ. God, thank you that you have brought this to my attention because I want to know true righteousness. See, when I don't have to protect my righteousness, I can trust his. I can trust his. You think Abraham has something to boast about, not before God. Boasting is excluded, Paul says. Paul corrects character. So grace is not new. Abraham was saved by grace. God has always been gracious and saved humanity by grace. There was never, ever anything that you could boast about before God except his grace. Grace is not new. Are you with me at church? This is not a new way that God relates to humanity. This is the way he has always related to us. I think these corrections, though, put us on our back foot a little bit. Paul's Jewish readers had built their worlds on works of righteousness. And so if this is really true, there's some things that we have built in our lives that we have to be really, really careful about not establishing our hope and our trust and our joy in. Martin Luther said that religion is the default disposition of the human heart. See, somewhere in us, in our brokenness, we believe that works will lead to righteousness. That if I work hard, I get good things. That if I do good, I get good. We actually saw this on full display. A very popular influencer this past week was, uh, came under harsh scrutiny after she was accused of being privileged and of be, not being relatable, and her defense to all of her millions of fans, was that she was not trying to be relatable. She had earned her privilege through hard work, and they should celebrate her righteousness. Now, there were, and there are many layers to this. I certainly don't know this person's heart, but suffice to say, she was defending the exact same objection that Paul's readers had. Boasting in our righteousness is permissible, if not good, because we've earned it. We've earned it. If Abraham has something to boast about, then so do I. If you work hard, then you can boast in yourself too. That was the influential message of the past week. And in many spaces of culture and in our hearts, this just makes sense. But my brothers and sisters, this way of thinking and living is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's really good news that it is. This is really good news. See, Paul has told us the truth. He's explained why we were wrong in our thinking, why his readers were wrong. He corrected our misunderstandings, and now he ex- explains why this is really good news. Look at verse four. It's really good news that we're wrong about righteousness and boasting in works of righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. See, the fundamental difference between the gospel that Paul is writing about and the objection of his readers come down to the difference between a gift and a wage or grace and works. See, gifts are the result of grace and wages are the result of works. Now, we may suppose that it would be good if the world worked exclusively, and God in particular, in works and wages. That we may suppose that God previously saved people as a wage for their work, but now grace is new. But but grace is not new, as Paul has established, and that's really good news. Why? Why is grace better than a wage? A couple of reasons. First, Paul says You're wrong about history, you're wrong about theology, you're wrong about character, and that's really, really good news. Do you see, Paul says, if you are right, you'll never find real joy. If you're right, you'll never know peace. If you're right, you'll never know rest. You'll never know righteousness. Why? Because wages have limits. You have limits. Your works have limits. Your ability has a ceiling. You can only earn as much as you can work. But in Christ, because of grace, you can receive as much as you are loved. Grace is greater than a wage. God's wellspring of love is infinitely more vast than yours or my ability to obey his word on our own. Grace is greater than a wage. But also the Bible is really clear what our wage actually is, what our works earned us. The wages are what we have earned through our works of righteousness is death. The wages of sin is death. Death death. Is what we have to show for our own works of righteousness. This is why in God's presence we have nothing to boast about. See, you don't want to be left with your wage. You don't want to be left with what you've earned. It's good news we're wrong about righteousness. You don't want to get what you deserve, church. You don't want to get what you have earned. You want grace. I want grace. So, we're wrong about righteousness. We're wrong about workspace righteousness. That's really good news. In fact, the way this grace is extended to us is because Jesus took your wage. Church, you don't want Jesus to give you what you have earned. You want Jesus to take what you have earned. You don't want to get paid your wage. You want Jesus to pay Your wage. You want Jesus to take your wage. And the good news of the gospel is that He has. Jesus took the wages of our sin and paid them on the cross so that you might receive grace. Paul says, You're wrong about Abraham. You're wrong about works. You're wrong about righteousness. You're wrong about grace. And that's really good news. Are you with me yet this morning? That's really good news. If you think you can save yourself, if you think you have reason to boast, if you think you want your wage, you're wrong. And that's really good news. Grace is not new news. It's good news. Grace frees us. Grace changes the way that we live. Can you even imagine? If life is by grace, then what we what we are we are not we are not devastated when we make the mistakes. We are not broken when we learn something new about God. We are not shamed when we are not morally perfect because we are not depending on our own righteousness. We are depending on his. We are not depending on what we have earned. We are dependent upon grace. See, grace has been extended to you because the good news of the gospel is that when righteousness could not be reached, righteousness came down. So Heavenly Father, we worship you and we thank you for this. Help us to live as people who know and love grace. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.